Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast where myself, Galen Stops, and Colin Lambert discuss some of the biggest news stories that have caught our eye during the course of the week. Um, so the good news for our listeners this week is that Colin has been bravely wading through um, a swathe of BIS data so that they don't have to. Um, Colin, what were some of your takeaways from that data? Because I know you published a number of articles this week kind of analyzing different angles you kind of took away from the data. Yeah, um, it was in the BIS's quarterly report. They, they do this, you know, they, they publish survey results in um, September. And then the following quarterly report, they sort of uh, run multiple analysis of the, uh, of the data. Um, and that's basically what came out this week. The I, I guess the key takeaways. I mean, probably take it in order. The big one for me was we listeners may remember. Yeah, you and I were puzzling in this podcast in early October over what the others section meant in the BIS yeah. report and who it represented because it was half a trillion dollars in average daily turnover that um, was basically unallocated to anybody, and we speculated it was retail aggregators um, at the time, but wondered why it wasn't in the retail. Um, element of the report um, and it turns out it was mainly retail aggregators which still begs the question why was it not in the retail element of the report yeah. it's retail orientated but <clears throat> notwithstanding that um, I guess the hint was I mean yeah, the the authors of the report um, from the BIS basically um, highlighted the growth in PB which interestingly was another thing that we sort of touched on isn't it I mean and it's something I wanted to sort of you know talk to you about was um i think it would have been in our after our hong kong conference in the podcast then when we were the infamous one where we resigned um i think it was a question around the um well pb volumes have gone up and we had tumbleweed from our pbs on the panel we did none of them really understanding what's going on um do you think there i mean these authors in in the report have turned around and said look prime brokerage played a huge role in this growth and the others were coming through prime brokerage and it's a lot of retail aggregators, etc. Um, so do you think then what we were seeing there was the PBs not actually really taking prime of prime that seriously? Cause it strikes me that where this stuff has come from is prime of prime. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yes and no. So I think certainly that could account for part of it. Um, but I also, but just the the sheer number that it rose by, the, the, it yeah. says you know the, the PB data rose by six hundred one billion across all FX products. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was a, I can't remember the exact percentage amount, but it was a sizable increase, right? If it was, if yeah, it was it just was, oh, it was sort of like seventy percent, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was about sixty percent or something, right? And it wasn't yeah. like oh the, the the prime of prime flows weren't miscounted pro- properly you know oh that's that's 20 percent off um yeah. i still i still think that number was remarkably high considering you know i don't know you know when i speak to, to uh pbs on the on the street i mean you know none of them none of them say that they're doing uh you know that much more business right even if they are even if they do say they're doing business i i they still seem somewhat mystified um by that figure, so I, I don't do think, think I don't, I don't think on. the prime of prime 
the rise prime prime can really account for that much of a difference. It could it could explain part of it, but I'm not sure that it explains all of it from my perspective. No, but do you think it's a question of the prime brokers thinking only about their direct clients as such and not thinking about what happens beyond that? Because, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, clearly the prime of prime is taking up a lot of volume here, you know, the retail aggregators. Um, and we should point out that the, um, I think it was spot volumes were about two-thirds to a half of this 500 billion a day that the aggregators yeah. are dealing in. Um, and the rest was like outrights and forwards. <clears throat> Excuse me, listeners. Um, for those of you wondering why I'm a bit like this, I'm living in Sydney, the smoggiest capital in the world. Um, but yeah, so the, the about two thirds to three, uh, sorry, a third to um, half was in spot. There was a, a, quite a bunch in outright forwards, and there was a significant amount in swaps. Now, that'll obviously be the roles, which are automated. So I think that kind of conflates the number a little bit. But I just, I just thought it was an interesting, um, I guess, question that we asked prime brokers, you know, about what's driving the volume, and nobody had an answer. And as you pointed yeah. out on this podcast, the clearing guy had an answer, um, but, <laughs> and they didn't have an answer. Yet clearly, it is, to a large extent, prime a prime. And I just wondered what that says about the relationship between the major prime brokers and the primer primes. Are they maybe becoming more competitors? And as such, the major primes and, and you know, this is you know, the prime brokers, the people working for the prime brokers that we're talking to are beholden to management decisions around, you know, this is a threshold for these clients that we are going to hold. And they may have some great relationships and some really valuable clients they could bring on board. They're not allowed to. And that may be part of it. But I, I sort of thought it's quite an interesting thing that they're not really talking about this. And is it because the primer primes are starting to take some of their direct clients? Potentially, but that's that's definitely not the sense that I get talking to people. I mean, it's it's always it's always been a, a bit of a delicate balance, right? The the kind of where does the line between you know who goes to a PB and who goes to a primer prime? Yeah, but. But certainly, when I talk to people, the the relationship certainly for like the kind of what we'd call it is the bigger prime of primes in the space. The relationship is between the two is pretty good, and it tends to be there tends to be quite a clear acknowledgement when someone is kind of big enough to graduate from kind of you know into yeah. a, a PB and, and vice versa, right? When they when they probably belong with the prime of prime, there seems to be a, a general acknowledgement of that. Um, and, mm. and I haven't, I haven't really heard stories of, of, of fighting that direction. I've heard, if anything, actually, I've heard of, of, uh, you know, some or at least one PB that some people felt were targeting actually more prime of prime style clients. Yeah, yeah. I, <clears throat> I have to say, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, it, it strikes me as being a fairly symbiotic relationship whereby you nurture clients. I guess the reason I'm thinking it, I'm, I'm one of the reasons I think it may be, I may be, you know, on on the on on point here is because at the moment we're in a situation where the prime, the big primes are still offloading clients, and so therefore they're probably looking at going like, well, where's, you know, they're not seeing their their business grow as such because they're they're too busy as their as their thresholds are, are, are raised, they're having to offload more clients towards primer primes. 
um, which I still don't quite find as being the most um, efficient because all you're doing is sticking another, you know, cog in the wheel, aren't you? you know, you've got to go through another prime. Um, interestingly, someone's been uh, in my ear banging on about, oh, yeah, prime of prime spaces, you're not going brilliantly, um, but we are. You know, it's the usual story that you and I get from oh, everybody. Cool. Yeah. Oh, everyone yeah, else yeah. is doing really badly, but we're doing brilliantly. Uh, well, frankly, you know, if there's a firm out there doing 10% of that volume, they're doing rather well. Um, and it strikes me as if you've got, if this, you know, half a trillion, and don't get me wrong, the there are, <clears throat> it also includes um, like the financial divisions of um, corporations. So, like, mm. Ford have got, a like, a credit company, and it would include any volume by them. But the, I think the majority of this is retail aggregators, especially the roles. Um, but, you know, it strikes me that, you know, that's quite a healthy growing segment. Which brings me on to my next point, which uh, from the um, BIS reports was around execution styles and the makeup of um, the market. Because the... Data kind of shows, and the report, you read through the whole report, and there's a few things that are non-FX, but there's, it's the majority of it is FX-related. You read through the report, and the one thing that keeps on coming out at you is the rise of the non-bank firms as, at the expense of the banks. And I kind of think this is linked with this rise of the others as well in many ways, because if you look at a lot of non-bank market makers, they, you know, they made their business model early on, when they couldn't get to the local banks in their early days, when they couldn't get to the hedge funds and, and they couldn't get on aggregation engines, they targeted the retail aggregators. So, you know, call it foresight, call it good fortune. They were kind of in the right place at the right time when this, you know, retail aggregator space kind of exploded because, I mean, I think it was 60% up. It's, it's a huge increase. Um, actually, I think it's, no, it's more than double, didn't it? I think it's actually more than 100% up. Um, this, you know, it's, it's a great position to be in, and these firms have, you know, were there to take advantage of it when the banks weren't. But did the whole report just go through saying, you know, non-bank firms have got a bigger presence in emerging markets. They've got a bigger presence in, on these platforms. They've got a bigger presence around these client bases. And I think it's something we've known for some time, but it's quite stark reading when you're looking at the BIS, you know, the Central Bank of Central Bank's, highlighting this in the data um which i thought was, is, was quite an interesting one yep is, is the the influence of the non-banks at the detriment of the banks and and the reason i'm asking that is you know you kind of republished an article not that long ago in which you argued that fx is still a banking market and that actually some of the data suggests that um that, that perhaps this idea that the bank, bank's influence in FX has been, you know, significantly reduced isn't quite as accurate a narrative as some people think. Well, that's one of the interesting paradoxes of this report. I mean, actually, yes, I do think the, the banking industry is still very important because just in terms of the sheer volume handled by these firms is, is huge. But a lot of it comes down to the credit. And therefore, you're in a situation whereby, you know, you've got the PB, for instance, which, as we saw, grew tremendously. And I think also, you know, with the PB, you know, we've spoken about the retail aggregators, but a big growth in the PB outside of that was going to be from non-bank market makers taking on a bigger chunk of this of this firm of this market. So you've got an interesting 
question there in the banks because you know I'd love to sit in on a meeting between PB and trading at some of these houses because you've got the PB effectively funding the um, competition for the trading business. Yeah, and I guess yeah. it, it's always been that way to a degree. I mean, I don't think it's that this is anything new as such, but yeah, just generally speaking, I just thought it was interesting. The report goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, and there's quite a lot of mentions of this rise of the non-bank market maker. Um, it could just be they're confirming what everyone's known, and it, you know they've they've kind of hit it as zenith, particularly you know with someone like City taking some of these firms off their PB. Um, and this maybe throws a different light on that decision as well in, in its own way. Um, but I guess yeah, my point is you know if, if you think beyond spot um, in what we would call a regular amount. This is still a banking market. Um, yeah, if you want to do a large trade in spot FX, you are likely to go to a bank and either use an algo or go to one of the fewer banks that are willing to actually quote you a price for that risk, a decent price for that risk, I should say. Um, if you're going to do an FX swap, you're going to go to a bank. Um, and I think if you're going to be trading you know, in reasonable amount in a lot of emerging market currencies that maybe particularly aren't NDFs, you're going to go to a bank. So I think we, you know, we need to sort of put it into perspective. I mean, yes, the non-bank firms have, have made a big chart, have made a big bite into the business, and it's a noisy segment because, you know, frankly, they're still controversial because a lot of them had roots in the HFT world. And yeah. their biggest challenge for me, in many ways, is being able to turn around to people and actually convince them they're no longer HFTs. And I think some non-bank firms do a better job of that than others. He said, provocatively. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, other, the other thing in, the, um, in this report as well was um, a discussion around you know, anonymous direct and indirect. And it was clear to me that the, and again, this helps the non-bank firms in their own way, that the customers are definitely putting more of their LPs in competition. Um, maybe not necessarily in terms of, you know, I'm going to put 12 LPs into competition for this dollar Swiss trade. But the yeah. fact is that more trades are being put out into competition. I think whereas before they may have had you know, an API connection or they just go and hit the GUI, clearly the single dealer platform is losing out in some ways to the, um, to the aggregation. But it's definitely the aggregation because um, I should clarify, the first report I put out this week um, on the execution methods, and I put it on LinkedIn and Twitter and so on, and I did say... I'm a little bit confused by the data because it flies in the face of everything I've been told because it effectively said that, um, you know, Refinitiv Matching and EBS were, and I think one of the hotspot pools, were like dominating the market at the expense of the others. And I'm going to, that doesn't sort of sit with everything I'm being told and I'm sure it doesn't sit with everything you're being told. And it turns out that actually there was an error in the BIS report around how the, the flow was allocated in the footnotes. And so it is right. You know, the aggregation venues are seeing a lot more volume than the primary venues. Um, Colin, are you guilty of spreading fake news? Is that what is that what the oh, takeaway here? Well, I'd love to. I'd love to be it's guilty. Inadvertently, of it, guilty. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, inadvertently, yes. All right, yeah. Put the cuffs on. Bang to rights. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, I mean, I think one of the reasons I was most worried about it was because I'd written something on Monday saying about should we be concerned about the primary venues? 
because their you know because their share of the market is so low. So probably I was more worried about the fact I was looking you know, not for the first time in my um, journalistic career I was looking like a bit of an idiot just 24 hours after <laughs> writing something. Um, it turns out I was okay, um, and actually that does highlight to me as well. You know, one of the other things that. Um, you know, the primary venues, we, we've discussed this before, the BIS report in late 2018, that the Markets Committee said, look, their, their, their volumes are dropping, but they're still um, the primary source for data and for price formation. So in other words, what, I mean, in other words, what it was saying in, in academic speak was, well, actually, um, every price comes from EBS or Affinitive Matching at some stage, unless a bank has an order. Um, so these venues are going down. And funny enough, actually, literally, you know, this week I've had a few conversations with people and someone told me that, um, and this is one of our infamous, I don't have a second source in this, Galen, but I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so someone told me that um, I think EBS had its lowest ever non-holiday day um, this week in terms of volume on EBS market, the primary venue. And likewise, um, a couple of people have told me that uh, Refinitiv Matching last month had its lowest month. Yeah, obviously it was lower when it first launched, but you know, effectively, probably lowest month this century, easily, and probably longer than that. Um, <clears throat> this is, I think, at some stage, going to become a challenge because you've got primary venues doing you know lower volume effectively than. Is being reported by CBOE and FX Spotstream and and so on and so forth, and yet this is still our price formation venue. Which which which, I mean, if you if yeah, let's let's say matching was doing thirty yards a day, you know, you're forming a price that will trade probably half a half a trillion dollars in in those currencies off the back of thirty yards. It's not huge, is it? I mean, I know we have to have somewhere. And it's the purity of the market that gives it its cachet and makes the data more valuable. But do you think we get to a stage where at some stage where someone says, why am I paying you know, 50 grand a month for data from a primary venue that's doing under 30 yards a month? A day, sorry. Um, I, I, I certainly think that that question will get asked and is being asked in some quarters. But then, put it another way, what if you're talking about that, like, that volume, right? You you put the figure at what half a trillion there of volume being done off the back of it. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, probably something yeah, like okay. that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so, just, so, just so, trying so to think so But but the ratio of of let's say thirty yards to half a trillion compared to like mm. let's double it, sixty yards to half a trillion. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't actually change the ratio that much <clears> in terms of the the volume that's being done off the back of it. No, I get that point. I mean, let me give you let me give you the data in a different fashion. Then, um, in 2013, the primary venues, I would estimate, and I have to stress this is all, this is all their um, spot volume. Um, but back then, when I'm looking at it, I don't think Refinitive Own were including FX all data at that time, and EBS Direct hadn't been launched, for instance. So it was this is yeah pretty much a pure. Then the, the pure primary venues, they were responsible for 10% of spot business. Now, I estimate that all spot business, including EBS Direct and FX All Business, currently is 2.5% of spot business. And if you look at it and say, which I think is a fair assumption on some days, less than half of the published volume 
is sometimes you know less than a third of the published volume by these venues is actually going through the primary venue you know of matching and market um that's going to make it about one percent whereas it was ten percent you know six eight years ago that's that's a yeah, tremendous that's a small drop-off. fraction yeah yeah and and from ten percent i mean i get the ten percent you know you can't have you know without one single you know liquidity pool um you can't have um you can't have like one one venue to dominate all and i think 10 percent was you know everyone thought 10 percent was perfectly fine but we're down at one you know i I say there are going to be days we're down below one percent that becomes a bit of a problem do you think it it can go much lower or that it will go much lower well to be honest i (laughs) i kind of thought when it you know when it was hitting two and a half percent maybe it couldn't go much lower and not for the first time in my life i've been wrong um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question of, you know, what can they, what can these platforms do to reverse this grind lower in, in their importance? Um, you know, talking to some of the traders out there, they're not sure there's anything they can do. I mean, I, I keep on coming back to my, you know, don't charge brokerage. And if you make the primary venue brokerage free and carry on paying for your data, yes, you'll see a drop off in, um, in, revenues early on but you know i'm sure you can make that back in 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 you know even if you raise your data fee a little bit more or you um you you attract more volume you know from non-data consuming clients who will be paying the brokerage it's um i I still i'm not sure what else they can do and asking around i've been talking to a few people about it this week and no one's really got a great idea they actually think it's a you know kind of terminal decline the worry is they don't have an alternative that they would suggest. You know, no one's saying, oh, okay, let's move all Sterling and Aussie and whatever to hotspot, and let's move all, um, you know, Euro and Yen to Fastmatch or anything like that, sorry, um, Euronex. Um, No one's saying that because they they think, you know, they look at that and go, well, that's exactly the same problem. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure what we do with it. That's a... Depressing note there, Colin. Well, <laughs> well, depressing if you uh, if you're a shareholder or you work for oh. one of these one of these platforms, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, if you if you look at the overall report, I mean, just to close out this this bit, if you look at the overall report, <clears throat> e ratios were fairly steady um, for the second report in a row. Um, that uh you know, I think it's around sixty nine percent of spot business, I think it's about fifty two percent of swap business, but these e ratios have been at that level for quite some time. There's your challenge then also for these new platforms as well as existing platforms. Um, the pie isn't growing you know f x volumes apparently are up, and I think we're all still a little bit surprised by that, um but they're yeah. very you know very volatile um but the actual e ratio from the report. Is not it's not really going that much higher. It's kind of grinding a bit higher. You know, one percent here, one percent there, um, which is also also food, you know, food for thought for those trying to grow a business at this moment in time. So there you go. An even more depressing note. Um, and another point that I wanted to pull out from the BIS, which you you highlighted, is that uh, FX settlement risk has increased since 2013. Yeah, it was an interesting one. I, I, I must admit, I didn't see this one coming, but they, um, the BIS collated data on settlement 
And they come up with the rather bold headline that $9 trillion of FX payments a day are effectively um, subject to high settlement risk and that this number's increased from either the, the PVP, i.e. the CLS type settlement mechanism. I think the report says it went from 50% of FX um, turnover to 40%. So, yeah, I, I spoke to someone about this who basically um, may, maybe disputed some of the arithmetic being done here. Um, okay. They, they didn't dispute the general finding, right? They basically no. argued that, um, that, that, you know, nine trillion might be a bit high. Um, you know, just the way they added up might be, you know, not how they would have done it. And also just stuff like, you know, if uh, if a giant bank does a huge amount of internalization with, you know, on us kind of settlement, you know, is that really her yeah. stat risk that we're seeing there, right? Um, yes, technically, you might be considered settlement risk, but I don't think it's necessarily what we want to be worried well, about. Yeah, okay, could I just quickly throw in there two words, Bear Stearns? Because <clears throat> yeah. if I remember rightly, Bear Stearns went under because of um, it, two of its funds, which was effectively an internal... Would have been an internal trade, wouldn't it? But you, carry on. You, you have me there. I was still at uni at that point, Colin. So, <laughs> oh dear, that's ageism right there, for listeners. Getting, getting, getting that English <laughs> literature degree that I would one day put to good use. Um, but, but so the, so the person I spoke to, the point that they made was, was even if you quibble about some of the arithmetic and, and how they're counting it, you know, they said like, even if say they're off by. Three trillion, which is obviously a huge amount to be offered. There's still six trillion, right, of settlement risk out yes. there, which is huge, right? I mean, yes. considering um, I'm just looking at your article now, right? So about 3.6 trillion was settled on a PVB basis using CLS or a similar system. So that's a whole nother, you know, CLS PVB system of risk out there. Um, so it, it's you know whether you agree with the, the specifics of this. I think the the general overall point is probably a valid one. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'd, I'd probably look at it in a more simplistic way. Funny enough, um, <laughs> and that would be that you know where was a lot of the, there was a lot of growth in emerging market currencies in terms of trading and risk holding. You know, more more funds are looking to you know hold or take their positions in emerging market currencies. These currencies are not currently covered by CLS, and they don't have the um, RTGS-type system um, in their local infrastructure. So I would have thought it was inevitable that you know, when non... And, and I'm using the term broadly in terms of CLS, because when, you know, there are local mechanisms out there that do the same thing in local markets. But you know, when you get this sort of non-CLS or similar settlement currency volume going up, Inevitably, you're going to see an increase in payment risk. Um, what can we do about it? Well, I suppose you could extend CLS, but I don't think that's as easy as it sounds. I mean, had it been that easy, then I would have thought would that have... CLS would have done it by now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so for me, one of the also the interesting lines from this is um, the task of reducing global risk is now firmly on the agenda of bank supervisors. Yes, that sounded very, very sort of um, foreboding, didn't it? That's an ominous statement, if ever I've heard one. Yeah. It was. It was. 
I mean, they're probably, you know, I, I reckon they could be very close to writing a very stern letter to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah. It's, I mean, they're probably they are probably looking at it in terms of you know what we what we briefly mentioned last week, the eastern sediment um, <clears throat> or atomic sediment. They could be looking at extending CLS. I prob- what they're probably looking at is just trying to extend the infrastructure, the modern infrastructure, into these developing markets. Yeah, not sure yeah. what else they can can be done really. I mean, you know, it's um, the fact of well, life well. is that people still want paying for their foreign exchange trades. Well, at the extreme end, yeah. At the extreme end, they could do, you know, say capital requirements on, you know, settlement risk that doesn't go through PPP type systems. Yeah, so I, I, I get so extending the sort of rules, um, you know, the UMR around um, around cleared volumes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because the same – another section of the report also sort of stated that you can see the impact of clearing coming in the, um, in, in the, in the data now as well because um, it was like the, the number of gross market exposures, which is like the, you know, the real money at risk, was lower. And they, and they said that's largely thanks to clearing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it could well be they would just extend that and say, look, CLS is a very good mechanism for settling foreign exchange trades, um, particularly when you've got a situation where a large proportion of the market probably doesn't want to go, go through clearing, particularly at the customer end. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, maybe the idea is, well, yeah, we put a capital charge on non-PVP um, uh, trades. Interesting one. We're an idea. We are an idea machine, aren't we? We really are. Um, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. It's more likely going to mean lots of speeches and possibly some sternly worded letters. Yes, yeah, I just got that feel all over, isn't it? Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, actually, which I thought was also interesting. I mean, I mentioned there about funds, um, and last week we yeah, we discussed you know, uh, the decline of funds, or well, we've been talking about it for some time now, as in how some funds are struggling to stay open and get their funds. Yet, we've had a couple of launches of funds that you've reported on this last week. Can you sort of, I mean, do you, is this like people saying, look, we think there's an opportunity there, or is it just, look, you know, it's something we need to do? Well, so it is interesting, because like you say, you know, we, we've, there's been so much talk about, you know, is macro dead, and then also, you know, it hasn't been a, a, a vintage period for FX-focused funds in particular. And, you know, we've written articles on, you know, allocators talking about how they like, you know, funds that are, you know, not just focused on FX, they prefer ones that are, are spread across. And now we have two FX-focused ones. So the first one uh, that we reported on this week is from uh, Newberger Berman, and that is aiming to deliver positive returns of 5 to 6% uh, of excess of cash per annum before fees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's yep. by explore, exploring relative value across G10 currencies. Then you also have Adrian Lee and Partners, um, which is targeting a absolute return of 7%. And again, that is a, a global macro alpha fund, it's called. Um, mm. And the fund comp- has three portfolios, global equities, global fixed income, and currencies. Um, it, it is interesting. And I, I wonder if part of this is, is people looking at, at what's coming ahead and, and thinking that actually, you know, the FX and global macro scene could be set for an uptick based on kind of 
you know issues in the market that we're seeing today um i i wonder perhaps if some of the um the death of of global macro was somewhat exaggerated um yeah i i also wonder I also wonder also I mean when you look at the the returns right 5 to 6% and and one and then 7% in the other these aren't kind of the the uh the huge returns of kind of yesteryear when funds would go out there and and, and promise people we we wrote about this before how um mm. the the role of of some of these funds has kind of changed in the portfolio right where people are, are kind of recalibrating, they're looking for this, just like give me, give me steady five percent return, and I'm actually happy. Which once upon a time yeah. would have been, you know, nowhere con- considered nowhere near good enough. So it could be this is actually just kind of that people are responding this and they're structuring these funds slightly differently than how they once did, and and that's what we're seeing come to market is a different kind of type of fund responding to this. Yeah, and I, I guess it's also it's a question of they're, they're pushing the diversification angle. As opposed to the return angle, aren't they? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm more interested in you diversifying my exposure. And if you give me five percent, that's great. As opposed to diversifying and give me twelve, because you know, also my overall risk is in my portfolio is going to be a lot higher than I want it to be. So yeah, and and that's the truth. One of the quotes is is literally in in one of the articles we wrote. We we quote. um, we quote someone saying, you know, you know, as the low yield environment continues, investors are increasingly seeking differentiated investment solutions capable of generating uncorrelated returns. I mean, that's kind of the the yeah. case I think we're seeing there. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of boilerplate language, but I think it's you know particularly significant now, isn't it? <clears throat> I know I also have another one of my my theories on this. And going back uh, to last week, where I said we need sound effects. I know we need a sound effect for one of my theories, but I also think it's a reflection of the fact. I mean. If you look at the, the two funds in question, you know, they've got just over – one's got $10 billion under management currently, and the other one's got $14 billion. And in the big scheme of things, that's not huge. Um, and I think that allows them you – know, you're talking about is global macro dead. I don't think it is. I just think it's resizing. Yeah. And I think these firms are sitting in that sweet spot around – you know, they can grow from here without a doubt, but they also um, – can operate in the market without you know, too much impact, too much slippage, um, which undermines returns, which is, I think, is what we spoke about the other week in terms of you know, what the bigger funds are facing. You know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the multi, you know, hundreds of billions funds, it's like turning the Titanic when you want to turn a position. These funds can actually act a lot more nimbly and probably give their, their clients a um, better return. And I wonder if this is actually a sign that, yeah, global macro isn't dead, but it's moving, it's just resizing to a situation where people think they can manage the business, you know, just physically yeah. manage the size, of, the size of the cash, under the assets under management. So we shall see. There's another one of my theories out the way. Um, I wanted to close out. I can't, I can't, I can't let a podcast go without um, asking you um, what the hell is going on yet again in the world of crypto. So um, you wrote a piece yeah. about Ledger X suspending... Is it the founders and CEOs or something? Yeah. So, so yeah, there was a bit of uh, controversy somewhat in the crypto world this week as Ledger X, um, which, which is you know has been around. I mean, the 
the platform has been live all this time, but LedgerX has been around since 2014, so it's one of the more established players, and they worked hard from the beginning yeah. to get CFTC regulation to be kind of one of the more legitimate players in the space, right? Um, yeah. So definitely one of the more established people. Now, uh, the, the co-founders, uh, Paul Chow and Jessica Chow, who served respectively as CEO and COO, have both been placed on administrative leave. Um, and Larry Thompson, formerly of DTCC, has been you know, parachuted in to, to be interim CEO. Um, now, it, 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 always, um, it always gets people's attention when something slightly dramatic like that happens. Um, and uh, I've reached out for comment on exactly uh, why, but haven't received um, any answer. However... Which raises um, our suspicions. <laughs> however, one, one does suspect it might have to do with uh, the Twitter activity of uh, said founders, um, basically to 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 try and give a um, a, a a condensed version of this, which is um, LedgerX were were trying to uh, launch physically settled futures, and they'd had uh, an amendment application in with the CFTC that would allow them to do this. They, I think that went in in, in November two thousand eighteen, right? Um, yep, and. It, all the while, their you know, government people and the relations people are telling, you know, don't worry, it's progressing, it's progressing. You know, this is just how it goes. Um, and then back to the ice uh, backed <laughs> uh, yeah. venture um, yes. was 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 getting closer and closer to launching. And you know, there was this whole I think PR thing about being the first exchange to have physically settled futures right um yeah. and as the, the back launch got closer they couldn't get any response from the cftc and then um and then i, th- I believe paul chow was was uh, you know fired from the tech the cftc tech advisory committee and then the cftc started commenting about how there'd been changes in the the licensing uh structure that the licensing angle that um the ledger x were going for which they deny um and, and so basically that, that's the backdrop but then uh, paul the, the ceo you know took to twitter um you know uh, some choice comments include hey morons why are you lying about ledger x's quote licensing strategy to defend yourself at cftc hashtag fake news um you know there were the, the the quote we went with in the article was that you know that he planned to sue the CFTC for anti-competitive behaviour, breach of duty, going against regs, etc. Um, there was a uh, you know a 16-point thread that outlined this. There was uh, you know demands for apologies at dinner. Um, there was a lot, and and and. <laughs> And, and and so that the argument from from Ledrex was that that basically the CFTC had been playing favourites um, with you know the exchanges that they are close with and regulate etc. Um, and 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 I don't know. I, I should stress here that I don't know the veracity of those claims one way or the other. Um, no, no, no. What I do know is it's just when you're the CEO, it's it's rarely going to help your case going on Twitter <laughs> to argue with a regulator. <laughs> well, no, I, I didn't do cracking any harm, did it, last year, I suppose? But, you know, I, I, do, I do accept your point. <laughs> um, 
Well, it, yeah, I mean, it seemingly hasn't hasn't you know destroyed them or done anything, but at the same time, it certainly didn't help them. That that's my point. Like no. the the potential upside is is like I just can't imagine that the the press person handling this the CFTC's Twitter account is going to immediately run this up the flagpole so that someone can fix the problem. You know, that's yeah. a, that's a yeah. very unlikely scenario from there. Um, <laughs> Uh, again, again, <clears throat> again, like I should stress, you know, I don't have confirmation that this is why the decision was made, but um, one can't help but suspect You're doing that once again, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm happy to, to hedge and choose my words slightly carefully here, but um, yeah, one one thinks yeah. It, it wasn't going to um, to help, go work, to go help down the well. situation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just yeah. as a general rule of thumb, you know. Stay Don't away from it. Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> words, words I should live by, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, on that glorious note, we will close out today. Um, just a quick note to listeners. We have recorded this before the um, UK general election. So... Um, well, well, I don't suppose we were that surprised that the Conservatives got in, were we, Galen? Or, wow, <laughs> no one saw that coming. And we'll just delete that appropriate in time for recording. Um, thanks very much for listening. We will be back for our uh, last in the thick of it of the year next week, and we'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening.